Welcome to Before You Were Born. Harry and Nash with you here this week in history, May 29, all the way through to June 4th. We're exploring, we're getting in amongst it, we're having a good time. As always, Harry, how you doing? I'm good. I'm excited for this week because this topic, it's uh, quite close to my heart. Your topic is quite close it to my heart? It is, because it's actually about the profession in which I work, which is, which is quite interesting. About radio? Not quite. Oh, wait, that's right. We're not professionals. We do this for free. (laughs) Yeah, it's actually the community sector. But yeah, pretty much the same thing. Yeah, same thing. Nash, what are you speaking about this week? Um, So my story, this one, um, I'm exploring the martyrdom of Joan of Arc, by which I mean she died. The sacrifice of Joan of Arc, her death, which of course was on May 30th of 1431. Martyrdom sounds so much better, though. It sounds like a hero's death. Well, yeah, I mean... I mean, that's what it is. Well, yeah, so hero's death, martyrdom. And, um, you know, in some contexts, it sounds really cool. In other contexts, it's not so good. But in this context, it's it's very interesting. It's very good. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, so, Harry, I'm excited. You're keen? You're going to ask me what I'm speaking about, or...? You just said... I didn't didn't tell you the topic. Oh, sorry. I'll tell you the topic now. All right. I guess if we must. (laughs) I'm, I'm speaking about the one and only Helen Keller. Of course, she was visually and hearing impaired. Yeah, right. And I'm going to talk all about her story because on the 1st of June, 1968, unfortunately, she passes away. Right. And we're going to have a look at her glorious life. It's interesting. I'm I'm aware of the name, but I don't know the story, so I'm keen to listen on and find out more about that and much, much more from a time before you were born. Cue the intro. I have a thing. Good evening, and welcome to television. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Let's go back to a time before you were born. Before you were born, yes. What we're about to talk about did happen before you were born. Can I just say, though, we've often gotten criticism about sometimes our topics are before you were born. We did a topic um, in 2000, the GPS, but this yeah. topic is well and truly before anyone <laughs> I've ever met was Yeah, born. so to all the haters out there who are like, hey, come on, you know, some geriatrics out there, I know, maybe they're 30, maybe they're 32. Hey, I was born in 1991. Well, guess what? You definitely weren't born on May 30th of 1431. <laughs> Just geriatrics that are like 30 years old. Oh, that's that's really old, Nash, <laughs> really old. Look, I don't think you're really old until you're at least, oh, I don't know, 25. Yeah, okay. So I've got a good Fair year enough. and a half left in me, I reckon. Oh, good. Okay, so tell me about... <laughs> happening before I was born. So, May 30th, 1431. Joan of Arc is burnt at the stake. Okay, she's made a martyr for the French nationalist cause. Like all good witches, she ended up where she was meant to. (laughs) Well, you know what? Actually, that was pretty much it. Like, um, Oh, God, I was joking. Well, that was one of the um, charges leveled against her because she was allegedly getting messages from God. And not, not just anyone gets messages from God unless you're the Pope. And you're claiming you're getting messages from God and you're not the Pope, you must be a witch. Yeah. So, yeah, like a like a burning bush or son of God or something. Yeah, something like that. Or maybe you're just getting in the way of um, the English and their sort of expansionist <laughs> regime. Maybe that's what, what you're doing. That probably makes more sense. It makes more sense. <laughs> so for this to make more sense, actually, it's, I, I, so I prefer this story the wrong way. It is about Joan of Arc, but mm. really, really, it's about the Hundred Years' War. Can I just say, people were complaining after five years of war, these world wars. Yeah. hundred years, that is a long time to be at war. Interesting indeed. It was an interesting name because actually the Hundred Years War, one, wasn't for a hundred years. Yeah, I heard that. <laughs> it was slightly over a hundred years. And two, it wasn't one war, it was a number of skirmishes, a number of wars. And collectively they've been sort of analysed and uh, um, understood 
as the 100 Years War. Can I just say, Guinness Book of World Records would look at that and say, no, nah, they do not hold the record. Does not qualify. There's breaks. There's breaks. <laughs> There's breaks indeed there. So the Hundred Years' War, what's this all about? Well, we can sort of trace the origins of the Hundred Years' War back to the Norman Conquest, back in 1066, okay, when the French actually took lands from the English, okay? And then you fast forward a little bit further forward, and you have a strange arrangement between France and England where the English are what's called as vassals to the French king, okay, Um at what the is, time. What does that mean? What's a vassal? What's a vassal? Well, a vassal, essentially, you're sort of like a caretaker of the land. Okay. Um, you sort of, like, own the land, but you don't really own the land. You're, like, you're, like you're renting the land. You're leasing the yeah, land like from the monarch. Yeah, like Yeah. So that's an important point. And that ties into another sort of concept we need to get our heads around as well, which is feudalism. Oh, God. You never go for this whole show. This whole show is, is context. It's, history yeah. is context, man. History is context. Yeah, okay. So, so tell me about feudalism. So feudalism, we've come very far in 2017 in the modern era to no longer be under the scourge of feudalism. We no longer have to till the soil as peasants. I know you and I, we would definitely be peasants, I think. Well, oh, maybe, maybe you'd be a peasant. <laughs> I'd probably be a king, I reckon. Yeah, okay. I think I've descended from a long line of pharaohs. But um, <laughs> You're not even from Egypt. I know. I have more chance of that happening <laughs> than you do. <laughs> hey, well, the point is, like, feudalism, instead of having a nation state, instead of having a centralised government, what you have is you have a whole bunch of, like, landholders who hold... As a, a a a right or a um to the land, and they owe a debt of gratitude and service to the king, the overall ruler, and you know that's that's the feudal system. They have peasants and blah 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 blah. So, for yeah. example, let's say Sydney was like a feudalist system. Yeah. Then, like the mayor of Kingsford would like own all of Kingsford, and he'd give royalties to the king of Sydney, obviously, and everyone in Kingsford would have to pay royalties to the king. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, pretty much, the but king not, of Kingsford. Yeah, which goes to the king of Sydney. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and the important thing stuff. is like owning. Like they would own the land and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So Norman Conquest, we end up having the strange situation where the English king is technically going to be a vassal to the French, okay, in terms of owning, holding French lands. Okay. Um, but over time, France loses its regions to England. So England actually takes them back. So if you have this strange thing where they're technically vassals, but England has more power and influence over these lands than the French ever do. So they're technically vassals, but they have more power over them. This is so confusing. So technically, they've gotten this land, but they're still holding the land from the French. That's right. That's right. Oh, wow. So we're going to go ahead now. We're going to go ahead to 1328. I think we should just summarize and say that that's bad. People aren't happy about that. No. Well, no one's going to be happy if a bunch of English people own French land. Okay, fair enough. So we're going to skip ahead. Mm-hmm. From 1066 all the way through to 1328, okay? Oh, only 300 We years. have a death. A death in the family, the Capet family, okay? Or I think it's, I think it's how you pronounce it. C-A-P-E-T. Um, yep, Capet. Um, the Capetian line, okay? This actually descends all the way... Capetian. Yeah, that's the, the bloodline, the Capetian nice. bloodline. It trace, you can actually trace the Capetian bloodline all the way to the current um, Earl or Duke of Luxembourg and the Prince of, and the Prince of Spain, right? I've so always wanted to trace their lineage, so I'm, I'm glad now I'm that glad we glad we've done it. So yeah. the Capetian line actually dies out in 1328. There's not a male heir to the French throne. Okay. That's the important thing. So you need a new king. Who's going to be the king? Well, actually, at this right. time, the king of England... Right, Edward III, he had a legitimate claim because he actually was part of the Capetian line himself. He had a claim to the French throne. Could but he have two thrones, though? 
Exactly. Surely Could he? not. No, it wasn't a very good idea to have a have two thrones. You can't really be the king of France and be the king of England. At that time, people would have been hella angry. Well, so the French were like, no, this is not going to happen, all right? What we're going to do is we're going to um, nominate, I guess that's the, that's not the right word, but we're going <laughs> to roll with it. We're going to nominate this guy called Philip of Valois, okay, oh, great guy. to take the throne. Philip of Valois becomes Philip VI, and he takes the throne. And uh, crucially, remember how we said the English were taking land? Yeah, they right? were. And they were holding it, but they'd taken it, but it was very confusing. Yeah, but actually at this time, the English were losing land. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So the English were losing land. Look, in again. 300 years, you'd expect the tide to turn a little bit. Essentially, look, dear listeners who know this history better than I do, here's all we have to say. The land goes back and forth between the English. It does. At this time in France, it's one little region called Gascony, right? And that's the last little bastion of English control in France. Philip VI decides to take that away from the English, and that's in 1337. And it starts the 100 Years' War. It seems a bit petty, a petty reason to start quite a big <laughs> Well, let's think war. about a lot of conflicts over history. It's all about land, right? Yeah, it is, isn't it? What is it? Was it property is, what, like nine-tenths of the law? Is that it? Is that a thing? Don't ask me. I don't study law. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, they'll play us back at your bar admission thing. Like, he's like, um, I don't know. Anyway, so the point is, they try to go after Gascony. They try to take Gascony back to, for the French, Philip, and then the English are not having a bar of it. This yeah. starts the 100 Years' War. And the English at this time, they are technologically superior and they have better tactics than the French, and they absolutely demolish the French. They wipe the floor with them, okay? They have superior technology and superior tactics. Now, rather than this classical sort of, I don't know, if you think about a medieval war, you think of like, I don't know, maybe Braveheart, where you have two massive armies coming against each other and they're just going to have a wall of death in the middle of a field. They yeah. don't fight the war like this. How do they so fight it? Edward III, he has these like small skirmishes where they sort of attack and they retreat. They attack and they retreat. They attack and they retreat. And it works incredibly well because through 1356 to uh, 57, there's what's called the Peasant Wars, where they have this peasant uprising. They're very upset that the French king is not taking care of them and like, let's screw this. And we're going to turn against you and uh, we'll use our croissants to suffocate you. Uh, look, I don't think that's how they won the war, but I'm sure they used other Well, they things. didn't. They didn't win this war at this point. Um, so, crucially, there were two big battles. Um, there was one in uh, 1346 where the French lost, and there was another one in 1356, the Battle of Poitiers, where they actually captured, get this, they captured the French king. They captured Philip VI. Oh, what do they do with it? Well, they... they Top of his head? They ransomed him back to the French for a huge <laughs> amount of money, um, okay? And then they had this Treaty of Brighton, and it meant that the English could keep most of their lands. They were no longer a French vassal. They ransomed the French king, and... Um, the French did get one concession. It meant that the English would no longer have a claim to the French throne. Okay. Bit of a weak concession, though. They come away not the victor at all. Um, in fairness, the king does survive and lives. I think that's a pretty big win. Eh, he's a bit of a shit king, if you're honest <laughs> yeah. me. So no, fair enough. He's a French king. Okay, so um, there's been a bunch of wars. <laughs> it's like it's decided Britain yeah. is better than France. Yeah, but then the hostility resumes again in about nine years later. Okay? They just in, can't keep their hands in, off uh, each other. 69. So then we're going to fast forward even further, okay, to 1430. We have a new king on the English throne, okay? His name is Henry V. Oh. Why do you go, ooh, dear? I, I don't know. I just assumed this was an <laughs> well, important a, point to the there's story. There's a Shakespeare play written about this dude. Is he there? must be a bad man. Yeah. 
It's I'm called thinking, Henry V. I'm thinking of Richard III. There's a lot of kings in England. Yeah, well, it's a lot of numbers in these Shakespeare plays. Yeah. You know, Twelfth Night. Mm, oh, jeez. Yeah. Um, anyway. Imagine <laughs> Ven- no, that's just... That's, that's, that's a normal one. <laughs> I'm sure numbers are involved in being a good merchant. Yeah, probably. So the important thing with Henry V here is that he incorporates this new technology called the longbow. Oh. So the longbow allows... Um, just your average foot soldier, not a knight, because again, this is to do with feudalism. Knights are like guns for hire, yeah. very good mercenaries, that sort of thing. Um, and they have their suits of armor, they run horses, they're great in battle. But with the longbow, you're just average peasant. You can chuck a longbow in their hand, tell them to aim, and the longbow has enough velocity to pierce the armor of a knight, rendering their sort of advantage. Useless. So you know the the hellfire of arrows coming down from the sky from a yep. longbow. That's the danger you're facing here. And Henry V deploys this against the French. So we skip ahead again. English are getting everything they ever dreamed of. They're fucking. They are totally destroying the French because of this longbow, as well as the fact they have more money. They have. I mean, they've won the war without longbows. Shortly with longbows, they're just absolutely yeah. demolishing. So let's be, let's be clear again that this is not a war. This is a number of battles, number of wars. Yeah. So fourteen twenty two, both the French and the English king die. Okay. What in the same year? Yeah, same year. What are the odds? I, I couldn't tell you. Not very. <laughs> not very likely. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the new heir to the English throne, Henry's son. But he's actually nine months old, so that's not very good. I have heard about this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he doesn't become the king. <laughs> Somebody else becomes king. And I couldn't tell you because I didn't write that down. Um, so the English are demolishing the French, but we have both of their kings die. But at the same time, we are still getting closer to our date in history. Because remember, the date is 1431. We haven't even met Joan of Arc yet. No, no, we haven't even met her yet. We haven't met her yet. So England is wiping the floor with France still. They're still totally demoralizing the French, and people aren't happy, blah, 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 blah. But... but then a glimmer of hope for the French because there is a little girl and her name is Joan of Arc. I just, I just like, how do people find out about her? She's just going around saying, I hear God. Everyone listen to me. Well, pretty much. So Joan of Arc. How did people find out about any person back then? (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah. Um, God God sent me. Jesus was a carpenter at the end of the day. So this is true. This is true. So Joan of Arc. She's born around 1410, thereabouts. Um, we're, not, uh, we're not 100% certain because, well, you know, she was a peasant and peasants didn't take accurate birth records. And by the time she's about 13, 14, she starts hearing these voices in her head. Ah, undiagnosed schizophrenia, perhaps. Perhaps, but uh, it goes down as the voice of God. <laughs> oh, well, in that case, it definitely can't be schizophrenia. No, it's the voice of God, Harry. Come on, man. Your... Come on. <laughs> okay. Don't you believe? So by the time she was 13, 14, she hears God in her head, and God's telling her that she needs to travel to meet the Dauphin. So the Dauphin or the Dauphin, I'm definitely mispronouncing that. I'm sorry, all you French people out there. So she goes to meet the dolphin, and she tells the dolphin... And You're just giving up. You're just going to go with dolphin. Yeah. I okay, dolphin it is. So essentially the dolphin, <laughs> he's like... I guess you could call him sort of the, the king in waiting, I guess. I mean, like, he's like a ruler of a, of the region um, in, in uh, Vaucluse. Oh, man. I'm, Vaucluse. It's not Vaucluse. <laughs> okay, the maybe. dolphin of Vaucluse. <laughs> so he's essentially like... You're saying it all wrong. <laughs> the dolphin's a, a powerful dude, okay? Yeah. In France, he's not the king, but he's a powerful dude, and he's in control of the army. And she needs to go to him, mm-hmm. and he, she does this in 1428, and she tells him that she needs to captain the army garrisons and lead them to victory against England. Now, here's the thing. Yeah. This tells you about the state of affairs in France at the time. They were so desperate. They were so desperate for a solution. 
that the dolphin, the dolphin, he's like, fine, all right, cool. No, surely, surely, if a thirteen-year-old girl comes she was up 16 to you by this time, oh, come on, let's be real. Whatever. Someone, <laughs> a peasant comes off the street and is like, you know oh, what? 18. Let me lead the army. Imagine if someone did that nowadays. Just goes up to old Malky, mate. Listen, I want to lead the army. I've heard God got a great idea. I know it's not. It's not something that would. Uh, fly in 2017. No, but I guess but desperate this, times, des- literally, desperate Literally, very much so. Desperate times, desperate measures. So she actually does this. She goes ahead and she leads the French army to victory, okay? This is why she's such an important figure in French history, because she does this. She is a peasant girl. She comes to the Dauphin, the Dolphin. She says, look, Dolphin. <laughs> and she leads them to victory. And particularly, she leads decisive victories over um, the English and taking back the cities of Orleans, or Orlean, Olon. Oh, Jesus. Just it's spelled up. like Orleans. Yeah, Orleans. And uh, Remis. Now, and, and Remis, or Remis, or whatever. <laughs> That's the city where you coronate your king. Okay. okay. So she takes back Remis, blah, 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 blah. They're successful. There's much uh, adulation and praise and happiness, and the French, they, you know, they're back on track. Wait, so you're telling me they win one battle, and suddenly it's like everything is going French? Well, the tide really turns here. Like, okay, you know, this is like this is a this is a, this is a massive inflection point for them. Okay, to okay. to reclaim their lands and to reclaim their their dignity. Because think about this this way, especially the, the um, recapturing of Remy or Remis or whatever it is, that French city. This is where your head of state. Right is coronated. That's where it goes it's down. It's like right. It's an important. Buckingham it's like Buckingham Palace, or it's like Canberra. Right. You know. Imagine if someone rode in and like there was a whole bunch of New Zealanders in Parliament House taking over. You'd want. People you, would be upset. I'd be. I'd be right there on on the front line, <laughs> fighting them off. <laughs> One shrimp on the barbie at a time. Anyway, so the tide turns for oh, the God. French, but then also the tide turns for Joan of Arc because she's kidnapped. She's captured by the Burgundians. Now, Wait. Who are Brits? Not quite. What? So the Burgundians, they actually hand her over to... Well, they, they try to ransom her back to the French. And the French king is like, hmm, this Joan of Arc chick's getting pretty popular. I think I probably won't take the ransom because um, she'll be heralded as a hero. So I'm going to keep my political um, power while I still have it and not have this girl upstage me. Do what you want, want with the Burgundians. Uh, you gotta love, gotta love egos. So then the Burgundians ransom her to the English, or rather they sell her to the English, okay? Yeah. And then the English, you know what they do, on May 30th, 1431, they burn her at the stake. Uh, and she's tried as a witch. So there you go. So really, it's all... <laughs> she wins the war for the French, and then the French are like, no, we don't want her, she might take the crown. Um, there wasn't a concern that she would take the crown, but it's more the fact that you have someone who is a peasant. Keep in mind, she was a peasant. This is feudalism. You can't have a peasant being lorded around, and a woman at that. Uh, people are stupid. Yeah, really, she well, she like won a battle for them, a huge battle. Multiple battles. And, and no one cares. They're like, oh, you know what? She's a woman. She's a peasant. May as well just give her over and let her be burned at the stake for being a witch. But you know what? This is the part of martyrdom, the sacrifice, the, the tragedy of that sacrifice that people, at least the French people, um, find incredibly uplifting. And it's a deep sort of nationalism that they have and the pride that they have in, in, this, in this public figure. I don't think she really sacrificed herself. I mean, she was kidnapped and then sold. It wasn't, she wasn't <laughs> like, they were, the Brits weren't like, okay, we need, to, we need to sacrifice one person. And Joan of Arc okay. was like, pick me, I will be okay. sacrificed. She didn't elect to be burnt at the stake. But, but I think it's more what she represents. I think perhaps she sort of made her peace with it. She was like, this is the divine will. Here we go. I'm happy to fry up for you. Yeah. 
I think at the end of the day, it's, it's what she represented. And she represented that strength, you know, that femininity rising from the bottom. Now we're here. Yeah, it started from the bottom, now we're here. Literally, she was a peasant, now she's the the saviour of the French people. And this, like I said, turned the tide for the for the French people, and it came to a head with ending the Hundred Years' War. There you go. Can I just say, though, I've learnt one thing from Joan of Arc. I don't want to fight for the French. You're a hero, <laughs> you get killed. You lose, you get killed. What? What's the deal? Yeah, no. I don't want either of those things. No, nah, you don't want to fight for the French. No, you know who no. I do want to be? Me? <laughs> no. A Cam Baron? No. Can I just answer? Uh, no. <laughs> Helen, Helen Keller. She was a revolutionary. We're going to find out all about her phenomenal life right after this. She was actually a Canberran. Welcome back to Before You Were Born. Now, Nash, we just spoke about Joan of Arc, but let's move to another amazing female, Helen Keller. Helen Keller. Ever heard of her? I have. Well, I know the name, but okay. I couldn't put a face to the name and I couldn't put the story to the name either, so... Yeah, I'm, I'm actually really keen to hear about this one. Okay, so unfortunately, this day is a bit of a sad day in history. 1968, 1st of June, Helen Keller passes away. Oh. But I thought it was an apt time for us to look back at the life of the one and only Helen Keller. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. So should we do that? Well, I guess we're not going to talk about gravies. So. <laughs> I've been look, dear listener. I've been trying to get Harry to do a gravy segment for so long. He's just so resistant about gravy. I don't, well, know, what's your, I don't not, know your version to gravy. I'm not on boat with gravy. I'm not a gravy you're, boat. You're on the gravy boat. Yeah. All right, Helen Keller. Let's get back on track now. 27th yeah. of June, 1880. She's born, and she's born as bad as it sounds. And I hate using this word as yeah. a normal child. Right. Okay. No deformities. No disabilities. No issues. Anything like that. Okay. About 18 months into her life, yeah, she gets sick, and. People are unsure what sickness it is. There's a lot of theories about it. Some people say scarlet fever. Some people say smallpox. They're not quite sure. Oh, so it's still unknown. It wasn't that they didn't know then. They just still don't no, know. No, they weren't sure. It's, it wasn't documented. Okay. But this illness leaves her both deaf and blind. Now, we're in the oh, 1880s, geez. right? We're, we're in 1882 by now. And we have a deaf, blind girl. What does that make you think? Uh, it makes me think that she doesn't have much of a future. And that is correct. Yeah. A lot of the time, you have someone that's deaf and blind, you have a choice. You keep them as your kid or you put them in an institution. I want to set the scene. It Well, back then, right? Back, back then. then. Yeah, back oh, then. I mean, up until the 60s, 70s even, still happened in the 1900s, by the way. Really? <laughs> Not the 1800s, yeah. 1970s. Wow. Institutions were being closed. It was a really big case in 1965 area where Robert Kennedy actually closed down a massive institution in, um, in America. But I'm, I'm moving away from the point. Yeah, right. Yeah, in yeah. the 1880s, it was terrible circumstances for people with disability. Someone that was blind and hearing impaired, mm. chances are they were going to be put in an institution where they would be segregated from society, just not allowed to marry, yeah. sterilized, which unfortunately what? was just a very common, Seriously? very common practice. They did it in the 50s in England with people that were homosexual, and they've been doing it for many years, or used to do it for many years, with, with people, people with disabilities. disabilities. Yeah. Oh, jeez. And, of course, forced into these institutions away from the rest of the world, you know, not given adequate space. It was overcrowded. It was terrible. So this was the choice put in front of the Keller parents. Can you guess what they did? Uh, I'm guessing they sent it to an institution. No. Oh! Definitely not. Oh, good. No. <laughs> I don't know, because, I don't know, just the inflection in your voice made me think... And Sorry, I've been jaded by weeks and weeks of doing history podcasts where the worst outcome has <laughs> happened on the reg. Well, I mean, it's a pretty bad outcome. I mean, she's she's born 
and then straight away becomes deaf and blind. Yeah, it's she not, doesn't have a chance. It's not an ideal situation, especially but in the 1880s. We can give credit to her parents where credit is due. Oh, they, they made the right 100%. choice. 100%. But their choice was so right that it led to a series of events that would make Helen Keller one of the most influential people in the entire world. Helen's father takes her to Baltimore to meet with a doctor. And who yeah. does this doctor refer her to? But none other than one of our favourite men in the entire history of the universe. George Soper? <laughs> Not Soper. No. Alexander Graham Bell. Oh, what? Really? Yeah. So Keller meets with Mr. Bell. And Alexander Graham Bell, who, of course, we spoke about, did a lot of work with people that are deaf. Oh, um, you know, oh be- that's right. That was his whole idea with the, the telephone. telephone. Yeah, 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 of yeah, course. Yeah. Okay. So... Mr. Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor of the telephone, yeah, did this one move that literally changed the life of Helen Keller. <laughs> this is so crazy. Like, two of the biggest names in it's, history. It's, it's insane. All right, okay. He sends her to Perkins Institute for the Blind in Boston, Massachusetts. Right, okay. And this is important because it's here that she meets, I would say, someone that is not well known, but arguably the biggest part of the Helen Keller story. Right, okay. And that is Anne Sullivan. Never heard of her. Never heard of her. She never sounds like the Michael Collins of this story. She, she very much <laughs> is. She is a recent graduate from Perkins Institute for the Blind in Boston. So she does have a vision impairment. and she Herself? She does, yeah. She signs on to be a mentor, and she's paired with Helen Keller. Yeah. And this is important because this relationship between Helen Keller and Anne Sullivan lasts nearly 50 years, 49 years. Wow. It is a partnership that helps... I'm jumping the gun. I'm getting too excited because I want to tell you what happens <laughs> next. This whole thing just makes me excited. So Anne and, and Helen, they don't start off the best. You know, Helen's an unruly child. She doesn't want to be taught these things. She's deaf. She's blind. It's very hard for her to learn things. Well, that's that's the one thing I'd be interested in in the first place is how can you actually, and this is my prejudice coming up, but how do you actually teach someone who is deaf and blind if the two major sensory inputs for information are, you know, cut off for you? Touch touch it's touch so wait did helen keller invent braille (laughs) no i mean maybe (laughs) so anne sullivan dumbest thing that she's ever very very dumb up there just not great so we're getting back to anne and helen okay sorry yeah anne speaks to helen's parents and she says listen i have an idea let me go away with helen for a little bit i reckon i can teach her how to read how to write how to speak parents say you know what we trust you You've already had such a good relationship. Let's see how this goes. Yeah. So Helen and Anne, they go into isolation for a bit. And Anne does this thing. Anne pours water onto Helen's hand and then spells the the word for water through sign. So through sign language. Yeah. So so Helen now associates water with this sign language for water. Okay. She feels the water, then it's touched to her. And Anne does the same for dirt and a couple of other things. By the end of the first day of teaching, Helen Keller has learnt 30 words. That's a big achievement for someone that is deaf and blind, that, you know, has been to school, but really nothing has worked so far. Anne has cracked the code. And this sparks the rest... That's really cool. Sparks the rest of the life for Helen Keller. Yeah. Helen now starting to understand words. She's starting to be able to, to speak, to mouth words, that type of thing. That's that's what's really amazing to me. Like, if you obviously I mean, like, if you if you're deaf, it doesn't sort of um, render your vocal cords useless. No, obviously you can still generate sound, but then to know how to shape that sound to convey meaning must be very difficult. Even more difficult if you're blind. 
yeah, which of ex- course ex- Helen she is. was. Yeah. So Helen is excited. She's decided, you know what, this is my time to shine. She goes to high school, and this is where people start hearing about the famous Helen Keller, yeah. the girl that is not only blind but deaf and is in school and succeeding. Now, there is one person that hears her name, and it's crazy how many people that are famous have <laughs> paved the way for Helen Keller. And this um, man's name, I don't know if you've heard him. Um, Gandhi? No. Um, bigger than Gandhi. Bigger than Gandhi? I <laughs> no, must not, be the Beatles. Not bigger than Gandhi, but Mark Twain. Oh, wow. Okay. Huge. One of the biggest authors to ever hit this planet. Yeah, right. right? And he hears of the story of Helen Keller, and he goes, you know what? I want to help you. He writes a recommendation that gets Helen Keller into college. That's so nice. Helen Keller so she, is, so. <laughs> has, has met Alexander Graham Bell, who has referred her to this institute where she's paired with Anne Sullivan, who has taught her how to read, how to talk, how to write, Yeah, all these things. She is now beginning to produce works herself, is heard of by Mark Twain, who then says, you know what, I want you to go to college, gets into college through the help. I mean, she's a genius, but yeah. Mark Twain yeah. really helps her yeah. and also promotes her, you know, famousness. At the age of 21, she writes her first autobiography, and it goes viral. <laughs> it goes absolutely viral. Viral's a thing back then. Yeah, this yeah. is what would happen. But it's not only her academia that yeah. is so inspiring. It's mm-hmm. her social action. So 1915, she yeah. decides, I want to make an institute to help promote these issues. Because, you know, uh, an autobiography isn't enough. Isn't enough. Doing an education, <laughs> completing a college degree, whilst being blind and deaf, you know, not enough. in a time where most people that were blind and deaf were in institutions, yeah, not enough for her. She says, I'm going to make Helen Keller International, and she does. And Helen Keller International combats the causes and consequences of blindness and, and malnutrition. So it's huge. It's on the frontier. But it's not only this that she does. In 1920, she's one of the founders of the American Civil Liberties Union. Right. But it doesn't stop there. Okay. <laughs> She's definitely putting me and you and everyone listening to this to shame. Absolute shame. To shame. shame. For she, shame. She testifies before <laughs> Congress advocating to improve welfare for the blind. She tackles issues of women's suffrage, pacifism, and birth control. She is the voice of a nation. That's insane. But then in 1936, Anne Sullivan passes away. Yeah. Which is very sad. I was just thinking, like, is Anne Sullivan, is this the nature of their relationship? Obviously, she's crucial to um, Helen Keller's success. 100%. But is, does, does Anne Sullivan act as sort of like a conduit for Helen Keller? Because I can't imagine in, that she would be able to... In college, she would essentially transcribe the lectures for her. Yeah. Um, but in a lot of the speeches, it was, it was Helen Keller speaking. What? She, it took her a real long time to get comfortable with her voice. <laughs> um, and you can hear a clip of it here. Every step and road you are traveling. I know every step of the road you are taking. And I do need choices as you cheer and determination. And I rejoice at your cheer and determination. That's insane. So, so Anne Sullivan, she was <laughs> wow. crucial to this. And in 1936, she passes away. Right, okay. Which is terrible. But thankfully, the secretary for Anne Sullivan... Polly Thompson takes over. Right. And right, Polly right. Thompson is with Helen Keller for the rest of her life. Right. After Anne Sullivan dies, Helen Keller is not demotivated. She continues speaking. Yeah. From 1946 to 1957, she travels to 35 countries on five different continents, speaking with famous leaders, speaking with political leaders, speaking with notable figures about 
suffrage, about blindness, about civil liberties. Yeah, yeah. She's spreading good all around the world, inspiring millions, giving people the hope. She's very similar to Joan of Arc in the sense that she provides hope to people. People think we're in this dire situation. Then you see Helen Keller, what she's been through, what she's done, and they think, you know what? I can do this. She's inspired me. It's interesting, isn't it, how as human beings we need inspirational figures. We We need figureheads. We need a model. We need something to uh, emulate and then take on those um, lessons uh, that those people embody and then allow them to manifest within ourselves and and do good in our own lives and the lives of others around us. It's true. And there was really no greater model than Helen Keller. But unfortunately, on the 1st of June, 1968, she passes away in her sleep after a lifetime of achievements. A life well lived, indeed. A life well lived. And that, of course, is the story of Helen Keller. Yeah. I mean, just back on that again with the... um the model thing, the idea that you need to have someone to look up to. I feel like we're a little bit model or we're a little bit poor at this point in time in history. Who are our most prominent figures at this point in time? Right now? Look, if it's not Donald Trump, it's celebrities, which is actually Donald well, that's Trump. Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. are, they, are they anywhere near as morally virtuous as Helen Keller? Or Joan of Arc. Or Joan of Arc. For that matter. These two women show us what it means to be a true light unto the nations. You know, they are, they're awesome. They fight the good fight. They fight the sure. good fight. That's and sure. you know, what? I thought, I think it's about time that we had an episode that sh- solely shows how freaking awesome women were in history. Because unfortunately... It's taken us, what, 14 episodes? <laughs> the issue with history <laughs> is that it's dominated by men. Well, I mean, yeah. And, well, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My point of view is I don't care if you're a man or a woman. I just care if you're a decent person. So. True. And both these people, pretty decent. Very decent people. Decent indeed. indeed. Very All right, indeed. Nash. That does I said bring... very people indeed. Very people. Yes, they're very people. <laughs> very people indeed. Um, <laughs> now let's move right along to Fast Facts. Only segment, really. Fast Facts. We need an intro song for that, I reckon. We'll get one up for this week. I'm going to hear it right now. Fast Facts. Welcome back to Before You Were Born. We've just had two hella, hella uplifting stories, that of Joan of Arc and of Helen Keller. Now it's time for some fast facts. May 29, 1953. Hillary and Tenzing, they reached the summit of Mount Everest. Harry, what do you know about old Hillary and Tenzing? I know that Hillary was a New Zealand man. Which I think technically makes him Australian in he's this pretty, case. He's a Russell Crowe. As for any it. like New Zealander who's done anything good, they're ob- immediately Australian. Yeah. You know what's yeah. crazy is that Mount Everest is 8,850 metres high. That's that's very, very high. 8,850 metres high. It's like 8.8 kilometres. Yep. Jeez. Imagine running up that. Running up Everest would be harder than not running Everest. <laughs> Correct. (laughs) You know what's interesting about Everest? Even though it is the highest point, okay, at 8.8 kilometres high, the deepest point, the Mariana Trench beneath the ocean, right, uh, beneath the Pacific Ocean, is 10, 10 10.9 kilometres deep. It's like Everest and a little bit. And and a little little three kilometres. Just a little on the side. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on to May 30th, 1431. Of course, what you spoke about, Joan of Arc is martyred. Yeah, she's burned Burned at the stake. stake. Martyred is just a good synonym for killed, I think. Yeah, she was was killed. Yeah, she was killed. (laughs) All right, May 31st, 1996. Benjamin Netanyahu 
is elected the Prime Minister of Israel. Yahoo! You know what's interesting, though, is he's elected, then he loses a couple of times, then he's elected again. It's like yeah. in Israel, it just goes back and forth with is prime he, He's still the prime minister, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Yeah. He got re-elected in that 2009. Dude, that dude's got a ball of voice. His voice is so, like, <laughs> It's deeper than the Mariana Trench. <laughs> <laughs> um, moving on to June 1st. CNN is launched in 1980. Fake news! <laughs> Fake news! Fake news! Yep, that's, that's it. That's all we have to say. That's all we need to know. June 2nd. Um, Babe Ruth retires from baseball, 1935. Do you know a lot about Babe Ruth? I know that Babe Ruth wouldn't be anywhere near as famous as he is today had they allowed black people to play baseball at that time. Probably (laughs) not. But at the time, he held the record for the most home runs, and he held that record for about 40 years when he retires. And even on his last game, one of his last games, he still hit another three homers. He's, He's crazy. It's pretty good. He's pretty good. And did he play with like he had like a bloody cigar hanging out of his mouth half the time as well? That um, is a true athlete. I think you're thinking of Fidel Castro, but similar. Both have cigars. It's fine. Um, June second, nineteen 19- like hit things with bats as well. Yeah. <laughs> June second again, nineteen fifty three. This is a big one. Lizzie gets coronated. That's right, oh. Elizabeth the second also known as Queen Elizabeth II, is coronated. And she's the longest reigning monarch by about a year and a half so far and counting. Like, she's yeah. just going to continue. Do you reckon, um, this is this is um, opening a massive can of worms, but you reckon when she finally carks it, yeah, <laughs> when she finally bites it, when yeah, she finally speak about the queen. kicks it, when she finally passes on to the royal heaven, um, do you reckon we'll become a federation? Do you reckon we'll become a republic, rather? We already are a federation. It depends Stupid question. what... Do you reckon it, we'll become a republic? It depends what's more annoying. Changing all the coins or having a referendum? I'm going to say changing all the coins. Probably more annoying. Well, we're kind of in the process of changing the currency at the moment. I mean, have you tried using a $5 oh, note, the new weird. one in the vending machine? Good luck. So weird. Good luck. Um, June, June 3rd, things happen. Not important. So we're moving on to June 4th. <laughs> I do this sometimes just because that's the way where yep. I feel. June 4th. What do we got? So 1975. Oh, this is a good one for all you uh, Hollywood gossip heads out there. Angelina Jolie is born. Hang on. Sorry. Hey, hang on. So you're telling me, you're telling <laughs> me that it. on June 3rd, <laughs> nothing, nothing of historical significance <laughs> happened. And yeah. yet on June 4th, we're recalling the birth of Angelina Jolie because what? She's been in a few movies? Um, I think that takes us to the end of Fast Pass. <laughs> I think we're done here for this week. Classic. Should have left it on the coronation of Queen oh, Elizabeth II. Classic stitch um, but she was born on June 4th. Oh, good Angela, for her. Julie. Good for you, Harry. Let's leave Fast Facts. I'll, I'll do a better job next week, I promise. <laughs> um, but of course, that brings us yet again to another end of a huge episode and a huge week in history. The 29th of May to the 4th of June, we spoke about, of course, the glorious Joan of Arc and... and- the ever-inspiring Helen Keller. I'm so glad that I know more about Helen Keller now. I'll do my best to be... Just to be good, you know. I mean, like, hell, jeez, man, it makes me want to be more virtuous. We hope by the end of this episode, you feel like a better person. I know I do. I I don't, but I'm hoping that I will become one <laughs> one day. I hope so too. Yes, yes. And uh, actually, we're kind of on the road to becoming better people or better podcast hosts, I should ah. say. Um, some exciting news: your boys Harry and Nash, before you were born, has been entered into PodQuest, and we are well, currently not just entered. Sorry, not just entered. We are among the top ten finalists of PodQuest. 
So um, it's like X Factor, but for podcasts. Which is great, because everyone loves that show. Now, if you want to check out our entry into PodQuest, just go on podquest.com, and you'll find us there, our pretty faces. Or, of course, you can go on the Harry and Nash Facebook page. There'll be a link there for you to check out as well. And please support us. Yeah, like, subscribe, share, comment, all that stuff. You know how to do it. Facebook, <laughs> SoundCloud, Instagram, tune in. Um, we really appreciate your support. And thanks for listening this far. And as always, Harry... Everyone at home, we'll catch you next time when we take you back to a time before you were born.